Fire, I don't know if I say this often enough, but thank you for your ministry to us. One of the ways that hit my soul was I was reading this week about how in our prayer life we need to learn how to praise. And I was thinking to myself, that I'm convicted. That teaches me. I mean, I'm so quick to confess and lift up needs and stuff like that. But choir, you helped answer that prayer a little bit. Just move me a little bit closer to teaching us how to praise. Matter of fact, part of the same thing I was reading was saying there is no repentance. You know, when you turn from sin and you turn towards Christ, if you don't rejoice at the same time. And so, choir, thanks for teaching at least this old sinner a little bit about how to rejoice. Let's turn our hearts now as we hear from God's word. Let's, uh, if you would, just bow your heads, pray with me as we ask. One of the things we call this is a prayer of illumination. And that is that God would open our hearts as we read the word and as we try to explain its meaning as clearly and as plainly as possible, that the Holy Spirit would use his word to draw us nearer to Christ. We're totally, totally dependent upon you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher in this time. And so we humbly ask that you would open our minds and our hearts. We believe that you are sovereign. So you are going to take your word and you're going to apply it to our lives exactly where we need it, whether it's to be taught or comforted or challenged or afflicted or whatever the area, new insight. Help us, Father, to be open to what you through your spirit are teaching us. We depend upon you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're looking this morning at this passage, as we looked at last week, we said we had the beginning of the gospel and Mark's primary interest as we're studying this, the first of our four written accounts of the life of Jesus. Mark's stated goal, his aim, his interest, what he's doing is to teach us the gospel. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes in to speak of the one who was called to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the forerunner to bear witness to Jesus. His name was John the Baptist. So Mark is rooting John in that gospel promise of a new exodus from Isaiah, pointing to the fact that there's going to be a new deliverance, a new journey in the wilderness, a new promise of the presence of God, and through the wilderness, we're led home. And now... Jesus is on the scene. He makes his first appearance. And so in Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, we read, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. We said last week that Mark, the first of the written Gospels, has a very unique style in the sense that he is action-oriented, and he's fast-paced, and he's succinct. There's no wasting words with Mark. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed that and just even take the temptation and the baptism and that, you know, some of the early accounts we're getting of the life of Jesus, 
There is no description of each of the temptations. You've got to go to Matthew, Luke, and stuff to get that. Mark's just kind of very much right to the punch, right to the point, getting to it. And one of the rhetorical devices, okay, so one of the things that as we read, and here I am as pastor, as preacher, I'm making a very gutsy assumption here. I'm going to assume, this could be dangerous now, that you read the Bible on your own, and that maybe, just maybe, I don't know if I have high hopes, thinking, you know, thinking highly, you might want to read the Gospel of Mark as we go through this series. So I'm giving you a clue here as to a kind of a, a reading strategy. Not that I've ever been an English teacher or anything like that, but a good a reading strategy. Notice how many times in the Gospel of Mark he uses the word immediately. In the Greek, he uses the word for immediately 42 times which must mean it must mean something. And really what it means is he is going, here's the point I want you to wake up and pay attention. Mark's going, is very succinct, down-to-earth, right, action-paced, quick style. He's saying, pay attention, this is important, this is priority, this is necessity, this is primacy. And we notice in this particular passage, he uses the word immediately twice. Verse 10 Immediately he saw the heavens opened, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice coming from heaven. And then again in verse 12, when he came up out of the water, immediately the spirit drove him, thrust him out into the wilderness. And the word, the voice, and then being drove into the wilderness teaches us that even Jesus Christ, and if Jesus Christ, especially us, we need to hear the right message. Jesus' baptism and then his temptation was preparing him and anointing him for his mission into the world. And in his humanity, because we say, what is correct theology? Jesus is 100% divine and 100% human, And in his humanity, he needed to be prepared for mission. If Jesus needed to be prepared for mission and ministry, for life in the wilderness, how much more do you and I need to be prepared for life and mission and ministry in the wilderness? And one of the things we learn from this is when we read, Jesus' hearing, his taking in of the message was very holistic. Jesus took in the... I mean, just look at verse 10. And look at... He saw the heavens being torn open. I don't know about you, but that would get my attention. If all of a sudden I'm kind of going turn to the Gospel of Mark and we look, the heavens are being torn open, I'd probably stop preaching for one. Probably kind of go, what's going on? So his sight's involved. Audibly, he's hearing a voice from heaven. Physically, he's feeling the fact that a spirit is descending on him like a dove. So you have sight, you have hearing, you have feeling, you have touch. He is holistically taking in the message that God has for him. And then he's thrust out. He's not, the spirit doesn't take him by the hand and say, Oh, Jesus, let's take a little stroll in the park. It's Sunday afternoon. But he is driven out into the wilderness. He is thrust out into the wilderness. Why? The importance of the message. 
Now, if Jesus needs to hear the right message, how much do you and I need to hear the right message? And in this passage, we learn that there are two things involved with hearing. And I'm using the word hearing, and and what I just said is we need to not just hear. We need to not just sit in a classroom and take notes. We have to be enveloped by the message. The message has to grip us, body and soul, for us to be transformed and for us to be changed. Jesus took in holistically the whole message. What is involved in taking in the right message? One, you have to listen to the right person. And two, you have to follow the right path. Now, by saying that, I'm I'm implying, so hear me correctly, there are wrong people you can listen to, and we're going to cover that, and there are wrong paths you can follow. There's only one right person, and there's only one right path. So if you're going to hear the right message, you need to know who is the right person and what is the right path. Verse 10, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. The Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. We need to hear from the right person. You know, you and I are, ba- are hearing and listening to and being absolutely bombarded by all sorts of messages all the time. Pretty much nonstop, we're bombarded with messages. And most of those messages, how do I say this gently and nicely? We're not always hearing the right message. As a matter of fact, may I say most of the time we're being bombarded with wrong messages. Now, how can I say that? Let's just look at this from a biblical standpoint, okay? Give you a biblical diagnostic test, if you would. The Bible says, in fact, it's Jesus who says, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus makes a statement, makes a claim. He says, you shall know the truth. Okay, another way of wording the message. The message is the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So let's ask us a diagnostic question. How free are you? And you might be going, oh, good, feel good at this point in the message. This is good. I'm not too legalistic. I'm pretty free. Well, let's press the point. You don't think I'm leaving it there, do you? Let's press the point a little bit. Because the Bible defines freedom a certain way. It's not just freedom from legalism or freedom to do what you want. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians chapter 5 even goes so far as saying freedom was the aim of Jesus' coming. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And then he goes on to say, he says, don't use your freedom. Don't use this freedom that Christ came to set you free to indulge your own interests, your own agendas, your own will, what he calls the flesh. But he says, rather, through love to serve one another. Aha! There's the crux. Freedom is for the purpose of love. So do you want to know how free you are? Look at how well you're loving. And love is not simply an emotion. Love is not a motive. You know, a lot of times, I know I say this, we, we say something like, well, I'm speaking the truth in love. And we go, I sincerely love you. Sincerity doesn't define love. Love is a verb. 
Love is an action word, and love is a skill, which means you can be as sincere as you want. Biblically, you either love well or you stink at it. You know, I can sit there. I love to play golf. Okay? I enjoy golf. And I can sit there and say, I sincerely love to shoot in the low 70s. There's Phil Mickelson. There's Jeff Birch. I'm very, and there's no deception about that. I'm very sincere about that. I'm not fraudulent at all. But my score is around 95. You know what that means? I stink at golf. No matter how much I try to say, I want to, it's a skill. You saying I sincerely love you, if you're harsh, if you're defensive, if you're critical, if you're never happy, if you don't listen well, if you don't understand and if you don't enter in and seek to understanding, you don't have very good skills at loving. And that means you're not very free, which going backwards means you're not hearing the right message. And we don't hear the right message because we're usually listening to the wrong person. See, if we were free, and we let the truth will set you free, and I'm speaking to the whole church, myself included here. Why do we struggle so much with defensiveness? Why do we struggle so much with being criticized or what other people think of us? Or let me press it further. Why is it that Republicans can't sit down at the table with Democrats or blacks with whites? Or why can't churches from different doctrinal differences sit down? And I'm not speaking about compromising the truth because we don't compromise. Why can't we sit and have a conversation with one another? See, you should and be, if you were free, you'd be able to have a conversation, never compromise your position, but you'd be able to listen to the other person, understand the other person, enter in. If we're not free, we're always having to prove our point, be right. Get what we say before we even hear what we're... The question is, maybe we're not as free. And we're not as free because we're, we don't hear the right message, because we're listening to the wrong person. We either are listening to the world, we're listening to the other, other people, or here's our worst enemy. We're listening to ourselves. Let me give a personal example of how this impacts me even to this day. Just one personal example. Growing up, I loved to play basketball. And I played on the back. Now, see, I'll age myself. Today, they call it middle school. Back in my day, it was junior high school. So you got into seventh grade, and it wasn't middle school. I was in junior high. And believe it or not, I was in a little better shape then, and I was able to play basketball. Still this height. And I made the seventh grade team. And again, I made the eighth grade team. And I was excited. I went, ninth grade, I'm going to make the team. This is good. Something happened. I got cut. And I went up to the coach, because I never lacked verbal skills. <laughs> there are some things that God uses fairly consistently. So what did I do? I verbally went up to the coach. And I said, coach, why did you cut me? And he didn't lack verbal skills either. He put it in one phrase, you're too short. I was devastated. I went home, and I thought to myself, huh, I'm not good enough because I am too short. 
And then again, aging myself. This was about the time, so some of you are not, you're going to have to trust me, YouTube this commercial, okay? There was an actor, his name was Robert Conrad, and he also was a short man. And he did a commercial for Ever Ready Batteries. And the commercial shows him boxing, and he's doing these things, and and at the end, he puts a battery, an Ever Ready battery. Now, there are not too many commercials. I even remember what they're advertising for. An ever-ready battery on his shoulder, and he looks in the camera, and he says, go ahead, knock it off. And I can remember to this, to this day my reaction of going, yes. And it was a guttural. It was not just information. It moved my soul. <laughs> I went, yes. I dare you to tell me I'm not good enough. Now, that was a message that at age 13, 14, and 15, I received. And it still impacts me today. I still am hearing the message. And you want to know what Satan does? Because Satan's part of the picture here. We think all Satan does is organize our bad circumstances. That's not what he does. You know what Satan does? He takes the messages and the vulnerabilities that you already have within yourself, and he adds kind of insult to injury, if I can word it that way. So he'll take what I'm already speaking to myself. Remember, it's only the truth that will set you free. Any other non-truth is going to put you in bondage. There is only one thing that will set you free. And that is the truth of Jesus Christ. So Satan will take every non-truth you're speaking. And the non-truth for me is, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not a good enough leader. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not, I heard you're too short, I'm not tall enough. And I, and I have a wonderful companion in Satan who helps me to do that all the time. I hear the wrong message from the wrong person. Look at how in this text, even Jesus Christ had to hear the right message from the right person. In his humanity, to be prepared for life from the, in the wilderness... And to accomplish our redemption, he had to be anointed and equipped with the right message. Verse 10 says, the spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. And in the sacred writings of Judaism, there's only one place where the spirit of God is likened to a dove, and that is in the Targums. And the Targums were an Aramaic, first century AD translation of the Hebrew scriptures, because Hebrew wasn't being spoken as much, Aramaic was being spoken more. So the rabbis took and they took the Hebrew scriptures, translated them into Aramaic. And in Genesis 1-2, we read that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word means to flutter. So the Spirit fluttered over the face of the waters. And so to capture this very vivid image, the rabbis translated the passage for the Targums like this. Genesis 1-2, they said, the earth was without form and empty. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove, and God spoke, saying, let there be light. Tim Keller makes the point. He says, in the original creation, you had these three parties. You had God, you had God's Word, and you had God's Spirit. And then he says, if you look at Jesus' baptism, you have three parties involved again. You have the Father, the voice from heaven. You have the Son, the Word of God. And you have the spirit fluttering like a dove. Now, of course, in this, we're introduced to a very, very difficult doctrine that I promise you, you can't get your head wrapped around. 
but I'm praying we'll enter, you will enter into it, even with its mystery, and that's the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity that says you have three persons all co-equally in power and substance and glory, one God. Which means while you have one God, you have a community of persons. And so to hear from the right person, the right person communing the, communicating the message is God. And the message he is communicating to prepare and to equip and to anoint Jesus is, first of all, a message of identity. You are my son. Secondly, it's a message of love. You're not only my son, you are my beloved son. You not only belong, but I adore you. You not only are secure, but I'm proud of you. I delight in you. You're my beloved son. See, it's one thing to say I'm committed to somebody. It's another thing to say I actually am overjoyed through the roof, ecstatic and happy with you. We need to be covered in that kind of love. See, we know what it's like sometimes to have somebody committed to us. Do you know what it's like to have somebody through the roof thrilled with you? Who jumps up and down with joy when you enter into a room? The Father is covering the Son with that kind of love. And then the Spirit who gives power because he descends on him like a dove. Now why is this important? Mark here is alluding back to the original creation. Tim Keller says that this is actually a recapitulation of the history of the whole world. Because what you have here is Mark quite directly signaling to us that this is the beginning of a new creation. A new world is being born. By him taking us back, and he's alluding back to Genesis here, with God, the waters, the spirit, hovering, all of these things, he is signaling that just as the original creation was accomplished by the triune God, the redemption and the renewal of the world will be accomplished by the triune God. Now, Dr. Keller asks the follow-up question in terms of practical application and practical implications of this. What does it all matter? And he quotes from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writes, In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Ultimate reality is a dance. And he goes and he quotes from the second novel in Lewis's space trilogy, Paralyndra, where Lewis writes, what do you think the solar system is? What do you think the world, the planets spinning around are? What do you think the sea is back and forth? What do you think the birds are whirling around? What do you think the seasons are? It's a dance. We're made in the image of God, and God is not just an individual. He's a community. So there's a dance. And when Dr. Keller says, what does it all matter? He says it matters more than anything else in the world because the whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. He says, why does Lewis choose to dwell on the image of the dance? He says, because a self-centered life is a stationary life. It's static, not dynamic. A self-centered person wants to be the center 
around which everything else orbits. Self-centeredness makes everything else a means to an end. And that end, that non-negotiable, is whatever I want, whatever I like, it's my interests over everybody else's. It's static. I'm in the middle, my, and you all revolve around me. And he says the Trinity, God, is utterly different. Because instead of self-centeredness, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are characterized in their very essence by self-giving mutual love. No person in the Trinity insists that the others revolve around him. Rather, they revolve around the other. Read John 17. Jesus is saying the Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. John 16, the Spirit glorifies the Son. The Trinity exists to look away and to defer and to give and to be other-centered and to glorify one another. And Dr. Keller says if this world was made by a triune God, that's how God reveals himself to us, he says relationships of love are what life is really all about. If from all eternity, without end and without beginning, ultimate reality is a community of persons knowing and loving one another, then ultimate reality is all about love relationships. Relationship is at the essence of the universe. Where do we get that? We get that from our doctrine of God. Different views of God have different implications. As soon as Genesis 1 gives us, and remember Mark alluding back to this, how's Mark presenting to this? We are presented with God, the three in one. Jesus being baptized, the voice of God from heaven, the spirit descending on him like a dove. We are being presented with the reality of God. And the very first proposition in the Bible is, in the beginning, God. And as soon as we are presented with that, We are presented with God, how he reveals himself, who he is, and who he is is a relational being. He exists as three in one. He exists in no other way. He only exists as three in one, which makes all doctrine relational because the essence of God is relational. Relationship is at the center and the essence of the universe because there's no God without relationship. That's who God is. So God is, so if you're hearing from the right person, you're hearing from God. That's the first step in hearing the message and taking it in. What's the second step? You've got to follow the right path. Look with me at verse 12. Verse 12, again, we're stuck with, we have that word immediately. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now again, notice our parallels. Dr. Keller talks about our parallels between Genesis and Mark, between creation and new creation. What do you have in Genesis? You have the Spirit moving over the face of the waters. You have God speaking, let there be light. You have humanity created. Humanity. Then you have history being launched. What is the very next thing that happens in the pattern, in the order of Genesis. Satan tempts the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. Now look at Mark and notice the same pattern. You've got the spirit, you've got the water, 
voice from heaven, God speaking, Jesus launching a new humanity, altering history forever. And immediately the pattern continues because what happens next? Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And even the detail about the wild animals, because in the garden, what's Adam's first task? Because he, he is to name the animals. And the animals at that point, they weren't wild yet, were they? Pre-fall. You had, oh, come here, lion, let's spend some time together. Now it's like lion will maul me. Come here, cobra. Rattlesnake, I'm not too afraid of you. Now I see a black racer and I'm running for the hills. (laughs) Jesus goes in the wilderness and he's there with the wild animals. See, what did the battle look like for Jesus? What did the wilderness look like for Jesus? For Jesus, it looked like a battlefield. The wilderness was a battlefield. And again, I'm going to remind us of the Genesis-Mark parallels. Spirit, water, God speaking, humanity, alteration of history, and temptation. Adam and Eve with Satan, Jesus with Satan. And I want you to notice something about their temptations, especially when you look at the entire life of Jesus. The temptation for Adam and Eve and the temptation for Jesus both involved a tree. For Adam and Eve, they were given a prohibition by God, weren't they? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They failed. They failed. Jesus, at the end, his whole life, a wilderness journey, his whole life, he's going through his own exodus. And he ends up, doesn't he, in a garden, a different garden. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Father, Abba, take this cup from me. Yet not as I will, but your will be done. And where Adam and Eve heard the command of God and disobeyed, Jesus heard the command of God concerning a tree and obeyed. And the tree that Jesus obeyed about was a cross. The tree for Jesus was a cross. And this time Jesus goes through the temptation in the wilderness. And even though he said, Father, take this cup from me. What did he say? Your will be done. I'm committed to your plan. I'll do it your way. Whether it makes sense to me or not, I'm following your agenda, your will. God said to Jesus, obey me about a tree. The tree was a cross and Jesus did it. And through Jesus, we get through the wilderness to the promised land. That and only that is the path. See, there's only one person for you to listen to if you're going to hear the right message. That person is the tri-personal, triune God. The relational God. That's the right person. The right path is the cross-centered path. We're going to read later on in the Gospel of Mark, as it says in all the Gospels, if anyone would follow me, let him do what? Take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life follows the path of the cross. And I don't know what that cross-centered path will look like. It's different for each one of us. 
But it's a cross-centered path for each one of us. Whoever will lose his life for me and for my sake in the gospel will save it. Jesus' exodus, deliverance, leading to a journey through the wilderness in order to lead us home becomes our new exodus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for showing us not just reality but ultimate reality, the essence of the universe. And we do pray that we would ask ourselves the questions, how free are we? Are we listening to the right person? Are we hearing a different message? And then we would also consider, are we following the right path? The path that's the cross center path, the path that also tells us that we're accepted by you because of Jesus' record. The path that's a, it's a cross-centered path, but it's also a grace-filled path. It's a path that says we are accepted, we are declared right, we stand right before you. We can be called sons and daughters, beloved of God, because Jesus Christ has earned everything for us. So, Father, I do pray for us to listen to you and follow the right path. In Jesus' name, amen.